I'd like to introduce you Horia Mossadiq, who is a very brave and courageous person from Afghanistan who has been a human rights defender for the last 30 years, 25, 30, 40, <laughs> 30, ever since you knew about human rights. Um, and one of the things we're gonna, we're gonna mention and emphasize is that women's rights are human rights and vice versa, and people often forget about that. Um, Horia worked for Amnesty International from 2008 to 2017 as the main researcher for Afghanistan, and she was the longest serving person to have a position like that in Amnesty International. So she really knows her topic, and she's very committed, and she often travels back and forth. That was based in London, I should emphasize. Um, she travels back and forth to Afghanistan, so she really knows what's going on there now. Uh, so I hope we can, we're gonna have a little bit of back and forth, but she's gonna introduce herself and talk a bit about her background. And then we're gonna open it up for discussion after that. But you know, no topic is off limits, because Afghanistan is a very uh, broad topic with many different aspects of human rights violations to talk about, and also many positive things to talk about. Um, not just the food, not just the view from a helicopter, the one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen. <laughs> it really is. Um, but I think we should just start from there and feel free to introduce yourself and get to, and p let people get to know you for a little bit and then we can start. And please think about questions you want to ask as you're hearing us talk. Because a lot of people don't know that much about Afghanistan. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. As uh, uh, Jonathan said, my name is Huria Musadik, and I am from Afghanistan, and I am a human rights defender for uh, like as long as I know myself. It's difficult to put a year on it. So uh, my activism started from the time of uh, Russia invasion in Afghanistan, and when I was a school student back in 1980s, and uh, I started talking against policies of communist-backed uh, government in Afghanistan when the uh, compulsory military service was imposed on young boys and uh, boys as young as 16, 17 years old, they were forced into military services with very little uh, uh, training, they were sent to the war zones and often they were get killed. And I have seen so many of my own male classmates who were taken to military service and they never came back. Even their families uh, didn't see their bodies. But uh, when we speak about Afghanistan, unfortunately, uh, you may always know about Afghanistan through your news headlines and always not for good reasons because of uh, suicide attacks, bombings, uh, killings, and, and, and so many other brutalities that happening in Afghanistan. So, uh, and at the same time, because we are also living in an extremely traditional society, uh, being women, being human rights defender, it is uh, even, if, even more difficult uh, in the country. And uh, if I speak about Afghanistan like uh, I don't know how many of you really know about it so this is a landlocked country which is uh, surrounded by not very friendly neighbors like Iran Pakistan Russia uh, and China uh, and then it has always been also uh, a country of interest for many Western powers and USA and uh, I think this issue of geopolitics was going on for, for a very long time. And with all that happening in the country, it made Afghanistan one of the longest uh, wars that America has been fighting uh, since 2001, uh, after the military invasion and uh, NATO presence in the country. So if I go back, a little bit and just start from the era of, you know, when Russia invaded Afghanistan back in 79. And then uh, it was also the time when the Western countries uh, and also uh, USA started supporting Mujahideen and Islamist groups uh, in Afghanistan to fight Russia. 
And unfortunately, while the Russians and the communist uh, Russia-backed regime was committing a lot of human rights violations uh, in the country, but at the same time, the Mujahideen groups that were supported by USA and West, they were also committing massive human rights violations as well. Like, for me, as an Afghan, what, and, and as someone who grew up in war, what I really see is a continuity of a bad scenario, or I would say it is like a continuous nightmare that I'm seeing. Like, uh, because as long as I remember, there have been uh, violence, war, killings, and, and nothing else really. And uh, uh, so, Living in, in, in such a situation, and also especially living in a country where I have lost uh, many of my family members in the war, and witnessing the death of your loved ones, it uh, just, uh, like, some people de decided to take gun and go and fight, uh, but I decided to fight, but not with guns, with my pain, with my voice, and this is what I continue to do, and for me, uh, like as as an Afghan woman, uh, it's really important that I give voice to the people who are suffering in Afghanistan, and I am not scared of challenging the warlords or the Taliban or the Americans and NATO. I have always stood against them, and I have always raised my voice, despite I have been facing uh, a lot of threats against myself and against my family. Thanks for that. I think people know you a bit better. I forgot to say when we were opening that most people don't think of Afghanistan and the Czech Republic together, but both countries are two of the few countries that were invaded by the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And in both cases, communism didn't do a lot for either country. So you've had some similar experiences, believe it or not. And I also, I, I worked in, I spent about two years in Afghanistan and um, part of it was working as an American diplomat um, in Kabul, and then I went to Ghazni in the provinces, which is a, not a very safe area. But when, when I was working in Kabul, I worked for a part of the embassy called Communications and Public Diplomacy, and I was in STRATCOM, Strategic Communications. But what we did there, partially, was to finance projects to help promote women's rights as human rights, but also social rights. And we did things, and this is how simple it gets to improve the lives of women in Afghanistan, just to give it some context. We helped finance a private garden with walls where girls and women could meet together without being harassed by men and without having to be covered up. And that seems like such a simple idea. And it actually, you know, that, a little thing like that can mean a lot to people who don't have that little freedom. And big freedom as a concept, starts with little freedoms. And, you know, it always felt good to, to realize that we were doing things like that. But it was very hard to make progress because there's always pushback in, in most traditional societies, but particularly in Afghanistan, there's always pushback against reform that broadens the rights of women and ethnic minorities and modernizes the country in the sense of modernization being more Western in the way you dress, the way you live your life, you know, the choices you make and things like that, where you go to school, where you travel. And I wanted, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but why is there a pendulum swing in Afghan history? Why can't the country embrace at least some modernization and become more modern and have it stick in a small kind of transformation? You're not, you know, in other words, not asking the whole society to change completely. Why is that not possible? Why is there always a backlash that's more successful than the original initial attempt to modernize? Yeah, well, I think uh, if we go back to the uh, Afghanistan, at least if you look at the recent century or the last century in Afghanistan, you will see that a lot of modernization was happening in the country. Like if you look at the Afghanistan, like back in 1919, we were having the right to vote for women, which it was not possible even in Europe. Uh, Afghanistan was sitting on CEDAW committee of 
Convention of Elimination of Violence Against Women Convention in the United Nations, when many European countries on that time, they didn't like to be part of that. And we had, in 1960s, we had a constitution that was entitling both men and women to equal rights. And I remember my mother in 70s, she would walk with her mini skirts in Herat, and she would take us to cinema, and she would walk home at the middle of the night without a male company, and it was absolutely okay. Uh, my father was a governor in, in Nimrus province and during 60s, and my mom with two young children with her mini skirt, with no head scarf, she was traveling with one Jeep and just one driver all the way from Herat to Nimruz at the middle of the desert without being scared. Uh, my auntie, she was a young, beautiful woman studying in Kabul University. Every summer, she with a bunch of other young women, they will just travel by themselves from Kabul to Herat and spend the night in Kandahar and, or in Helmand and, and, and you know, like, it, it wasn't like that till Russia invaded Afghanistan. And then for West and for America, the best way to fight Russia was to promote Islamization and, and to promote that Islam is in danger and these supported the fundamentalist groups to go and fight uh, Russia. Because only with that ideology they could win war against Russia, which unfortunately did a lot of harm, not only to Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan as well, where they were uh, hosting the Mujahideen groups. But yes, at the same time, uh, I think in, in the last century in Afghanistan, there have always been a conflict between liberal and modern, uh, or I would say like-minded groups and fundamentalists and traditionalists. And uh, that fight was always like uh, push and pull factors. And, and sometimes, you know, like King Amanullah back in 1990, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, he, was, he was successful with some reforms. But then again, on that time, his government was overthrown by British supported mullahs who didn't want the modernization, unfortunately. And then back in, you know, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we experienced a lot of modernization in Afghanistan and we had female ministers, we had female members of the parliament and we had uh, quite enjoying a lot of freedom till, you know, all this war started. And then back in 1992, when uh, Mujahideen groups, they took over Afghanistan and then in 1996, when Taliban took, I would say, like, they put the last nail to the coffin of women's freedom uh, in the country. So what is it that these people fear? What fear do women bring to these people who want to keep them down? Well, I believe that as an Afghan, I think the biggest fear is because if women are powerful, if women are educated, if women are independent, then they cannot control them. It's about control, it's about power. And as long as you're uneducated, you're economically dependent, and you're unobedient, you're just looking at the pockets of your husbands, fathers, brothers, they can control you. They can control, they can make decisions about your marriage, they can make decisions about your education, they can make decisions about where you're allowed to leave your home or not. And, and, and this is all about the control. And, and this is what many of them are scared of. And, and uh, even for many traditionalists in Afghanistan, uh, women like me are, are absolutely unacceptable and, and they're horrified of, of, of even facing and, and talking to us. Well, just to add to this, a little anecdote that raises another question. I, I met an Afghan-American woman who's still very self-identifying Afghan. After months of knowing and working with her sister, her sister came from California. We met at Kabul Airport, known as Kaya. And we sat down, and we got there, and she looked at her watch after half an hour, and she said, I have to go. And I thought, 
Tanya, why do you want to go? We just met. This is crazy. We, all these months we were talking about this. She said, I have to get back to the villa I'm renting because it's going to be sunset in about half an hour. And if I don't get there by sunset, the landlady, not a man, but a lady, will tell the neighbors and everyone else that I'm a prostitute, that I'm a lady of the night. And I was shocked to hear that, that another woman would do that to a woman and bring her down. What would motivate someone to hurt another person like that in the context of a culture where women have so much in common in terms of their common oppression and the need to help each other? What, what would cause something like that? Yeah, unfortunately, in a society like Afghanistan and also I have seen in other, other societies that violence of women against women is very common whether it comes in the form of a mother-in-law, mother, daughter-in-law, or even, even as a neighbor. Even nowadays, like, uh, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Like, we are dealing in Afghanistan after that uh, campaign of Me Too, which women started talking about the sexual uh, harassments that they were facing at the workspace or, or, or uh, you know, wherever they were. So it also had a kickstart also in Afghanistan. In this very traditional society, some women were brave enough to speak out about how they were sexually abused, whether by their bosses or by their colleagues or by someone else in the family. And shockingly, nowadays, there have been some revelations that in Afghan government, uh, sex in return for government positions or sex for return for parliamentary seats were uh, quite widespread uh, at, at the very high level. And after those revelations, you won't believe that women were the first who would stand up against a woman who spoke out. And these women, like, for some of them, I understand the reasoning they are saying because once they claim that every single woman who works in the government, they will be viewed by the society, by the family, by whoever, if they have gained that position through offering uh, sexual service to, to, to their bosses. While this is not true, it was like a, a small minority who, who may have done that. But at the same time, what we are fighting is let women speak out because we keep fighting and we keep encouraging women to speak out. But unfortunately, the same backlash is coming more from women than men in Afghanistan. And this is also because if you live in a male-dominated society, and this is again the issue of power relation, then this is how women see themselves. Like as soon as they see themselves in a position that, you know, I would say, like, if they are being uh, approved by other men, they would do that. Like, if I, I was, I was in 2002, I was in a conference, and I was talking, and I, my headscarf slipped off my head, and another woman out of 500 people sitting in that conference in Mazari Sharif, a woman sent me a note that put your scarf on. And I didn't put my scarf on because, and I, and I said bluntly in that conference that back in 1980s, I wasn't wearing a headscarf and my mother didn't wear a headscarf, so why you're forcing me to do that? Like, I should have the right to choose. And then, unfortunately, the first backlash comes from women because then they get the approval of men and then they would be viewed as good women compared to the ones who are not obedient. So this is unfortunately, again, goes to the same male domination and beliefs that many women have in, 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 in those traditional societies. So that's interesting but depressing to hear. Um, so just to bring this up, there, there was a woman, when I lived in Afghanistan, there was a woman who was the governor of the province called Bamiyan, which is right in the middle of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has a landlocked province within a landlocked country, which was famously where the Buddhas were, which were destroyed in March 
2001 by the Taliban. You might remember f video footage of the Taliban blowing up the big Buddha statues. This was considered a cultural crime that was indescribable. No one understood how they could do this. Well, they did it, but that's in the, a, an area of the country that's considered relatively liberal. It's the core of the Hazarajat, which is the area inhabited by the ethnic Hazaras. And maybe you could explain what that means in terms of the ethnic differences. But there was a woman who was governor from, two, again, 2005 to 2013. Her name was Habiba Sarabi. So how could a Habiba Sarabi exist in Afghanistan when all the other things exist that you just talked about? Well, uh, it's uh, like just a few months ago, I posted on my Facebook and I said, Afghanistan is a country of t contradictions. So yes, in one province you can have a female mayor, in one province you can have a female governor, but in another province, a woman will not be able to walk out of her home without a male company. Or in another province, you will not get even a girl's high school. So this is where all these contradictions are coming. But uh, yeah, I think if, if you look like historically, people in uh, central Afghanistan, and especially in Bamiyan were more open-minded compared to other parts of the country. So maybe that was also, uh, that could have been the case. And at the same time, I think uh, it also depends on women themselves as well, because as an Afghan woman, what I have experienced is there are always pushbacks, but at the end, people will accept you for what you are. And like for many people, despite I, I am encountering a lot of threats and intimidations and issues, but at the same time, for many people, they accept me for who I am and they respect me for who I am. Even if it's members of the Taliban or the warlords or youth or uh, a white bearded uh, tribal man. So yeah, like th there is always, you, you have to push your way. You have to find your way. Otherwise, like for many people, they decide to not to take those challenges. They decide to not to force their way, and uh, this is where the traditionalists and fundamentalists are winning. But of course, it, it doesn't come cheap. It always comes with a cost, but we have already paid a lot of uh, costs uh, for, for, for even for this little freedom that we have in Afghanistan. Like so many women human rights activists and defenders were killed. Uh, they lost the family members and uh, they were facing a lot, of, a lot of security problems simply because they were teaching girls, simply because they were journalists, simply because they were running a radio station or being a female police officer. But, uh, but still women are pushing and, and none of those threats and intimidations are, are, are forcing us to stand back. So given that uh, there was going to be an Anglo-Pakistani colleague here, it gives us an opportunity to bring in Pakistan. So Pakistan, Pakistan had a female prime minister who served two terms, who unfortunately came to a terrible end during a campaign for another term. Benazir Bhutto was her name. Is there a possibility, you think, in the future that there could be an Afghan Benazir Bhutto who serves at the highest level of executive power in Afghanistan? We really hope, we really hope. I think the, like, I think in Pakistan and, and also same in Bangladesh, I would say, like they had also a number of, uh, uh, like two uh, female uh, prime ministers, Khalid Azia and Sheikh Hasina Wajid. So, uh, and comparing Afghanistan at least to Bangladesh and Pakistan, we, where we have also so many cultural similarities, uh, I really hope that we come to, th to that day, but I think it is not impossible, but uh, it is a long way and, and we are fighting for. Like even if you see now like the number of women in the parliament, the number of women in the cabinet, the number of women uh, serving in the high government positions, uh, it, it is increasing and, and we are getting slowly, slowly there. But I think it needs a lot of time because 
Even if we compare ourselves to Pakistan or Bangladesh, let's not forget that we are suffering from more than 40 years of war. Many people who were modern, who were like-minded, who were educated, they were killed, they, were, they died, and, and they are not, not there anymore. And then uh, we are also a country where life expectancy is 45 for women and 44 for men. And we are also a country that more than 75% of our population is under the age of 25. So with, with all this potential and at the same time with, with, with such a violent uh, recent or modern history in the country, I think it needs a lot of hard work and a lot of, uh, I would say, awareness raising till we get to that point. Did you register what she just said, the life expectancy is for women and men? 45 and 44, respectively. Think about what a 45 and a 44-year-old. This, this August, officially, I will die. <laughs> On average. Well, you're, we won't even go there. But you've, you've been benefiting from being a positive person and living in different places. That's astounding. Think of what a 44-year-old man and a 45-year-old woman in the Czech Republic look and live like. They're not old. They're not unhealthy on average. They have, they're in their prime. To have life expectancy be to the level of people in their prime in developed societies is something to really think about. That's astounding. Um, you know, and often, you know, people, you see people in Afghanistan and you think of them as an old man or an old woman and you find out they're in their 30s or early 40s. That was one of the things that really hit me when I went there in 2009 for the first time. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up also was children's rights in Afghanistan. Uh, not just the rights of girls, although that's very, very important, especially where education is concerned, uh, but the rights of boys. So Afghanistan is known for a few things that are uh, linked with traditional culture that predates Islam. And one of them is called Bachabazi. And an acquaintance of mine made a documentary film about it that was shown on Frontline in the U.S. Bacha Bazi means boy play or dancing. They call it the dancing boys of Afghanistan. And what happens is in a, in a society where men don't have access to women unless they are married to them, um, or in, they can be in the same room as they are if they're related through blood, usually, but they don't have physical access to them unless they're married, what happens is there's a subculture where boys dress up as girls, young boys who are groomed to dance and dress up as girls. They wear lipstick, they do their eyes up, and they do a show for men. And there are always some powerful men in the room. And the boy ends up with one of the powerful men at the end of the evening, and the powerful man does whatever he wants to the boy. And so use your imagination. It's a very... It's a very cruel human rights violation, and I recommend seeing this documentary film. You can look it up online. It's called The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. The director is Jamie Dornan, D-O-R-N-A-N. It's a very educational movie about a very sad aspect of Afghan culture. And in, that's largely in Tajik culture. In Pashtun culture, there's another aspect of this, um, which is where men apprentice boys to be their their boy uh, when they're young. And I read a, a US Army report on this, which was by um, a woman, an American soldier who worked for something called the Human Terrain Systems, which is a very military kind of name for a social science unit. And the explanations for this was, you know, we don't have access to girls. Um, you know, not that everyone should be running around doing whatever they want, whenever they want, but even to have social access when they're younger drives people into these very strange behaviors that are very, very cruel and destructive of the lives of young men. Uh, when I was there in 2009, CNN did a report on this where they interviewed someone, and he, I think he was Uzbek, and he talked about being recruited into Bachabazi when he was a boy, and he survived it. And he was married to a woman, but you could tell that he was very damaged by it. And the powerful person that took him was Dostum. And I just said that out loud. They wouldn't say it on CNN, but I don't really care. Um, and uh, Dostum is a famous Tajik, uh, sorry, Uzbek warlord from Jawzjan. Did I say that right? Um, and he's one of the people who became a good friend of the West in 2001 because he opposed the Taliban. 
And his people famously ran over Taliban prisoners with tanks and put them in containers and suffocated them. So when everyone was hating the Taliban, this guy was seen as a brute and someone of medieval instincts, but he was seen as our ally. And I'll never forget um, when he became vice president and Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, she dined at a table with this man. And if people from abroad had any idea of the biographies of the people they meet in certain societies and what they had to do to get their power and to get their prestige, they would probably get up and politely put their napkin down and walk right out without saying a word. And I just, you know, you gotta, you, it's good to know who your interlocutor is when you're a diplomat and you're, you're in government. And you, you, know, you can't get up and you, know, you can't check someone and ask what their biography is when you go to a meeting at a ministry. You assume this person has a job for you know, reasons of competence, not just patronage and doing things that are unspeakable. But it's always in the back of your mind. How did, the, how did the person get to where he is? Not she, he. And it's not a good feeling. And, and I don't know if you have, want to comment on this, but there are some very odd practices that involve fundamental human rights violations of young people who are defenseless and who have no organizations to defend their rights. Because as soon as you start an organization to the defend the rights of boys who are often sold into the Bachabazi practice, you're going to be targeted by people who want to deny that this exists. And we can talk about girls in a minute, but if you could comment on that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, this is unfortunately one of the darkest side of uh, a traditional and religious society like Afghanistan that you also see uh, Bachabazi practice is happening, uh, in, in, and especially in the hand of the very powerful uh, people, whether it is in the south or north uh, or east or uh, west. Uh, not, just, not just Tajik. Uh, I not, don't want people yeah, to think it, that. It, unfortunately, it, it came happens. came from there, I think, originally. It, 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 it happens everywhere, yeah. uh, unfortunately. And then, you know, with that, uh, this is like, uh, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, we don't have access to those boys, and, and you can't do much about that. And uh, what also happens that with some of these boys, as soon as they grow up, if they survive, they turn into another perpetrator themselves. And uh, then they start abusing other younger children because it goes in a cycle, and this is what they know. And, and uh, so, uh, yeah, and also I think I don't believe that uh, someone like Hillary Clinton or, or someone like, uh, you know, other uh, EU or US uh, diplomats, they don't know who these warlords uh, or, or these commanders are. If an ordinary person can, by a Google search, they can find out so much, uh, I don't believe they don't know, but at the same time, unfortunately, this is a luxury that they cannot miss for having a cup of tea. Like, uh, when, I, when I challenged Lakhdar uh, Ibrahimi, the uh, UN special envoy to Afghanistan for uh, bringing warlords back to power in 2002, along with Mr. Khalilzad, the U.S. ambassador, he told me, Huria, you can afford not to ha have a cup of tea with a warlord, but I cannot. So unfortunately, this is something that they would, they would take that, that luxury with pride to dine with, with, with one of the notorious warlords, or uh, they take that luxury with pride to have a cup of tea with one of the uh, heinous uh, local commanders uh, who uh, commit uh, massive human rights violations. And uh, at the same time, I think, uh, yes, uh, I think in a, in a country like Afghanistan, even when it comes to the issue of violence against women, many people are trying not to talk about it and, and hide it rather than speaking out because uh, I think from one hand, there is that uh, really naive belief that if we talk about it, it, it brings a lot of shame on us uh, as a society. But at the same time, the more you don't talk about it, the worse the situation gets. So this is why even with the current situation of campaign Me Too, we are encouraging people to speak out because the more you keep quiet, the more courageous the perpetrators will become. And I, I think uh, th this also goes back to the 
and, and you know, organizations such as Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission and many others, they kept talking about the uh, issue of Bachabazi and now in the Afghanistan new penal code, there are uh, like uh, specific articles that are criminalizing the act and, and uh, it, it comes with a penalty uh, through judicial procedure. But uh, because many of these people, people are so powerful, even implementation of the law and there will be such a big challenge. Just to be uh, clear, I didn't mean that, talk about Hillary Clinton sitting at the table with those doomed to be an attack on her. It's more of an example of how powerful people from the outside come and meet with powerful people on the inside without really uh, realizing what that symbolically means breaking bread with someone who's basically a horrible human rights violator. It doesn't look good, it doesn't sound good, it's just not good. Um, so another thing to talk about is girls' education in Afghanistan because education is a basic right. It's a basic human right to learn to read and write so you can prepare yourself for a life of being a functionally literate adult who participates fully in civic and economic affairs. So why? Why is girls' education considered a good thing in some parts of Afghanistan and a taboo thing in other parts that needs to be fought against at all costs? And why, after all the talk and all the money we've spent, we being the Western, uh, Western countries and everyone you can think of, Western organizations, and you remember when 2001 happened, when October 7th, 2001, the Americans went in, Laura Bush quickly, President Bush's wife, said that we're going to make this a crusade for girls' and women's rights. We're going to change Afghanistan in that way, which was probably a very open threat to many people. She probably shouldn't have spoken that loudly and that clearly when she did. Rather than talk about it, you do it. Um, but we failed miserably, despite all the money we spent, all the schools that have been built, and all the support people have gotten. Um, but there are still parts of Afghanistan where girls are going to school, obviously. But why is education, and the education of girls in particular, seen as, as such a threat when educating them could be an economic driver of, of prosperity? Well, I, like if we look back at 2001, when under the rule of the Taliban, when we didn't have one single girls' school, and comparing it to now, when girls are making more than 35% of the 7 million children back in school, it is a big change. Like uh, in provinces like Zabul or Uruzgan, we even didn't have a girls' high school, but now we have even women who are going to the you know, university or higher education institutions. Like the number is very, very low, but, but, but they are growing. Uh, I would be, uh, I, I, I would challenge you if you say that uh, we have trebly failed. We didn't fail. We started a fight for girls' education, and uh, we are winning, and, and more and more people are sending their girls to school. Of course, there are a lot of challenges. Just by the end of uh, 2018, more than 500 schools, mainly girls' schools, were closed uh, across Afghanistan, mainly in the uh, areas under the control of the Taliban. But at the same time, uh, like people are, are getting there. Like even in some parts of Afghanistan, the communities themselves, they are negotiating with the Taliban to allow the girls to go to school. Like even if it means more restrictions on curriculum, more restrictions on presence of male teachers, but still, this is the communities who are fighting and who are negotiating and they, are, they want their girls to get educated. And I would also say that for a country that has been in more than 40 years of war, fundamentalism and jihadism have been glorified, uh, it is not easy to break it in one night. And, 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 and for that, I think, it requires a lot of patience. Like even if you see now the number of women and girls, even in remotest parts of Afghanistan, who are willing and they are traveling to other provinces to have higher education, they are living in, in, in hostels and their families in that traditional society are okay to live 
leave their girls to go to another city and pursue their higher education is, is a big step in Afghanistan. So even for the number of women and girls who are applying for universities, even compared to the 70s and 80s, is, is just uh, rocket high. And, and these are not failures. We, 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 should, we should think about all the positive changes that are happening. We have women entrepreneurs that we didn't have before in Afghanistan. We have women in schools, women in universities, women in media, women in politics, women in private sector, women in government and parliament. So these are all the successes that we should build upon rather than thinking about the failures. It wasn't a failure and it's not a failure, I would say. I'm glad you said that because what I'm doing is I'm kind of cherry picking the evidence of schools that have been closed, the rollback. So if you only look at the rollback and you don't look at the wave, that comes and then suddenly goes here and then gets rolled back, you're missing all this progress. So that's, that's a, a very fair criticism of what is kind of a, a, a biased criticism, which I gave, because I'm focusing more on the things that, you know, we spent a lot of money, for example, we, you know, foreign institutions on girls' education and building schools, and the results have been very mixed. But on the whole, starting from baseline of pretty much zero from the Taliban, you're right, that you could talk about success. So that, that's a good point. That actually teaches you how to think about these things. Don't always look at what's gone wrong. Look at what's gone right, and then talk about what's gone wrong, but judge the whole process. Um, so to move on, and a little bit to refer to what uh, Brahimi talked about, one of, the, one of the things I noticed when I was in Afghanistan was that there were little pockets in different parts of the countries where the Taliban had support. And it tended to be where ethnic Pashtuns live. So, two things, um, in, um, in the north, um, there was an area where people said, we support the Taliban for two reasons, because they bring security and justice. The government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan is incapable of delivering those two things. Those are two basic functions of a state, security and justice. So. There's an argument to be made on the part of certain people in certain parts of the country that the Taliban provide services that other people can't provide because it takes too long to get a court decision about a dispute over land, for example, and people aren't safe. The police are incompetent or they're corrupt or they're both. Um, and the Taliban, on the other hand, where they control an area and you have given, been given an ID card by them, you can pass safely to go shop, go, go you know, do your things when you need to go outside. And some people's basic needs are all that matter to them. So they support the Taliban in certain areas like that. Um, I'm thinking of Kunduz in particular in the north, the part, that little bit of Kunduz where the ethnic Pashtuns were moved in the early 20th century. So can you talk about why, from our point of view, when we think of this as strange and outrageous that people could support the Taliban, why those two things, security and justice, are so critical and why that would lead people to support this group of medieval pseudo-scholars who think that they understand Islam, but really making a mockery of Islam? Well, uh, honestly, I would argue again against that phenomena, I think, or against that uh, issue. Even in, in, in Pashtun areas, people don't support Taliban because what they're also seeing, what presence of the Taliban means is more bombardment by the U.S., more nitrates by the NATO, and uh, low humanitarian services, uh, no school, uh, very low access to health and, and other services. And uh, th 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 this can't be true. But well, I'm not saying in all Pashtun areas, yeah, all people support but then, them. But then, yes, I, I think in terms of the uh, justice and security, like if the Taliban themselves are a source of insecurity, so if they are controlling an area, so they will secure the area. So if I'm the one who is trying to harass everyone in this room, but if you support me and I suddenly, you know, keep you happy and, and don't harass you, so it doesn't mean that I'm bringing security. So it means like if I'm the source of insecurity in other areas, so you can't really say that you're bringing security. But in terms of the justice, uh, unfortunately, because the 
judicial system in Afghanistan is so corrupt. And also, I think, in terms of the, uh, I would say, length of the issues and cases that it takes place, uh, because it is so long, it, it is long anywhere in the world. Like, for example, a terrorist attack happened in London in 2017. The hearing just happened in 2019, almost two years after the incident. So, but then people in Afghanistan, they don't have the patience to wait for one or two years for lengthy court procedures. So the easiest thing is go to the Taliban and say, this man stole my cow. Okay, bring him, give me two witnesses, two people just whether falsely or truthfully, they confess and say, yeah, I have seen him, he stole that guy's cow. Bring him and chop his hand and leave him go. This is not justice, this is punishment. If we really want to maintain the rule of law, we should, we should respect the law, we should do things through the law. And, and this is what the government is feeling by having a very weak judicial system, by not being able to maintain rule of law, by having powerful who are standing above the law. And the law is always a concern or a matter for the poor people this is why, like for some people, having a quick justice is better than not having it. But then, yeah, I think uh, th 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 this, is, uh, this is how it is. And then, like, uh, honestly, I think I have been in, in so many, uh, like, uh, Pashtun areas. I have traveled south, west, east, and, and everywhere. Uh, I, I was just in Kandahar this uh, spring, and people were saying, like, under the, uh, an area in Panjwai district, the whole area was under the control of the Taliban, and all the farms and, and, and uh, I would say, like, grape uh, wines were planted with landmines because they wanted to stop the government or NATO forces to, to progress. And as a result, what happened, I have seen each family at least one had one or two disabled child with missing limbs. Because those children were going to the field and, and their legs blew up by the landmines. And this was horrible to see that. And, and then people were saying, yes, it took for the government a long time to clean up and, and to fight back the Taliban and push them back from the area. And now our schools are functioning, but then clearing the area from the landmines will take much more casualties. So, and, and, and people, are, people are not happy, but then if they are left with no choice, and if they think that at the end of the day, the government will leave, Americans will leave, and then we are the one who have to deal with the Taliban, why not we just lean towards the Taliban and, 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 and make friends with them rather than fighting back. And, and unfortunately, th this is a reality of the Afghanistans. Well, I'm glad I asked the question about security and justice because it's obviously a provocative question, but the words security and justice should be read in quotes because it's not security and justice. It's protection money, basically. It's the equivalent of mafia protection. I won't burn your shop, I, I will burn your shop down if you don't pay me not to burn it down. It's this th type of thing. And justice is Sharia law. Is Sharia law justice? Well, some people would respond to that saying, yeah, you're right, their expectations are so low, they've accepted this horrible baseline condition. Someone else might say, but they're really deeply observant Muslims who believe in the Quran, and that this is all part of our indigenous Afghan culture. You know, it depends on the point of view you take. So we have nine and a half minutes left. So how about if we have some people ask some questions in the audience? So what would you suggest the U.S. and the other countries that have been there now for several years, um, what would you recommend they do? Would it be better if they left? Would it be better if they stay? What do you think? Well, uh, I think as an Afghan as, and as a human rights defender, I always stand against military interventions. I don't think bombs will bring democracy. I don't think bombs will bring human rights. I don't think bombs will bring us 
development. I would say that what is the best way forward is to support governments, to support civil society, and to provide development aid, humanitarian aid, and help countries to stand on their own feet. Don't build military economy. Don't build fake economy. Don't militarize the aid, because unfortunately, in the past 17, 18 years in Afghanistan, militarized aid became a phenomenon by many Western donors. And what they have done, wherever their forces were stationed, the majority of funding were going to that province. And then at one point, the military would also provide development and humanitarian aid, which blurred the line. And this is why so many attacks on humanitarian and aid workers are happening in Afghanistan and even on journalists. So this is why there has to be clear lines what a military is doing and what a humanitarian and aid agency is doing and how we can help countries by helping them, by providing aid, by providing donations, by supporting them to build up their own infrastructures. This is the only way forward. And again, I emphasize that nowhere in the world you can bring democracy and human rights by throwing bomb at people. Anybody else have a question? Because I'll interject for a second, if not. This, we have seven minutes, so we, we, we'll do this quickly. There's a peace process going on right now. And some people think of it as in a deadlock. Some people think of it as effectively over. But not, not deadlock, but done. But no one is saying that this peace process, the intention of which is to get foreign armies out of there and to get a peace settlement among warring Afghan factions. No one is saying that any proposal that's come out is good for women and girls. It's the opposite. Most people think that the Americans are exhausted. Their diplomat, Zalmay Khalilzad, who is from Afghanistan, who was our ambassador there about 15 years ago, I think. He was also our ambassador to the UN and Iraq. That Khalilzad is brokering a deal with political extremists with the sponsorship of the Russians to quickly get Afghans to decide to cooperate with themselves, even if it means basically forgetting about the rights of women and girls and, and you know, undoing a lot of the progress. Now, I won't use the word failure. Nothing's happened yet. But there's a big threat right now that the so-called peace process in Afghanistan will be ruinous and very destructive for women and women's rights as basic human rights. So could you comment on the peace process and what this means for women and whether it's actually going to happen? Yeah, well, uh, honestly, I was also asking the same question from Khalilzad himself, that if you were supposed to go back to a situation where we were in 2001, why thousands of lives were lost, why billions of dollars were spent? Because, you know, from the beginning, you should have thought that, you know, there is no military solution to the situation in Afghanistan, first thing. Second, you know, with the current peace talks, unfortunately, with US and Taliban, they excluded Afghans in general, you know, like whether it is exclusion of Afghan uh, government or exclusion of Afghan civil society and, and victims and, and whoever was involved. And it is just Americans who want to break a deal with the Taliban, or I would say with Pakistan, how they can get out of Afghanistan. And uh, at the end of the day, they don't care. And, and what message they are sending, not only to Afghans, but to people across the world that don't believe Americans, what they are saying, they don't mean it. If they say women rights, it doesn't mean that they really mean it. It means when they can use these nice words to gain the support of their population, to get into a country. Like, if, if you look at the situation in Iraq, if you look at the situation in Libya, if you look at the situation in Yemen, if you look at the situation in Palestine, if you look at the situation in Syria and in Afghanistan, you would know that, unfortunately, a lot of distraction has been done, but, but very little have been about the people themselves, and especially about women. Like, back in 2001, as you rightly mentioned, 
it was Laura Bush, it was Shiri Belier, it was Donald Rumsfeld, the uh, Secretary of Defense of the US, and they were all saying, oh, we are not going to compromise on women's rights. But now suddenly we realized that nothing was about women's rights. It was all about US that at some point they started hitting the Taliban, and now they will be friends, they were taken out of the UN, uh, you know, sanction list. Even they made a joke of UN Security Council and UN sanctioned list because at one point someone could be considered as an international terrorist and their names can go into the UN sanctioned list that they are not able to travel, but at some point they decide, oh no, that person is not anymore an international terrorist, let's take them out of the sanctioned list and become a friend with them. So for that reason, you know, honestly, I think for me, this is like the same uh, like mistakes that U.S. administration is repeatedly and historically making, like same in Afghanistan back in 1970s and 80s when they supported Mujahideen to overthrow Russia, and then they abandoned Afghanistan back in 1990s when it led to the rise of the Taliban. And now again, you know, they will abandon Afghanistan, and God forbid, we don't know what is lying, in, you know, for, for Afghanistan in, in the coming years. And what we are really scared that, again, they decide to come and bomb us because they don't like another group like Daesh or Taliban or someone else. So, yeah, I, uh, honestly, I think the whole shambolic peace process is uh, mainly a deal between Taliban and U.S. And at the end of the day, no one really cares about uh, Afghans and especially Afghan women. When you say no one really cares, you mean the international community I mean, I and mean, the UN? And I, I, mean, I mean everyone, honestly. I mean everyone. Like, uh, I'm thankful to some EU diplomats that made it really clear that uh, you know, uh, women's rights have to be preserved and, and they cannot compromise women's rights when they are making the peace talks. But unfortunately, uh, US is at the driving seat. And, and US is the one who is making the deals U.S. is the ones uh, who are uh, negotiating and, and they, will, they will make an agreement with the Taliban no, and, and everyone else is excluded. Like, uh, we are all at the back of the door and we are just watching, but we don't know what is really happening behind the closed doors. Sounds as if justice is being sacrificed on the altar of security and a phony security. Just imagine what's going to happen if the Taliban are given free reign to come back and be a partner in government? Yeah, unfortunately, in 2001, uh, in 2002, when uh, the uh, foundation for the uh, post-Taliban government, interim government, was laid in emergency lawyer Jirga, uh, and when we were calling on, on, on UN and on international community, that we don't want the warlords and human rights perpetrators to be part of the power. Lakhdar uh, Ibrahimi said that we cannot sacrifice peace for justice. And now, 18 years on, we lost the peace and we lost the justice. And uh, uh, honestly, I think with the same, using the same repeated failed prescription, I don't know how, how do you want to maintain uh, a just and, and, and a, a good future for Afghanistan. Well, on that note, we're out of time. I didn't see anyone else uh, raising a hand to ask questions, so. Oh, one more, we're out of time, but if it's quick, let's do it, because we're the last session. Wait, can, can somebody bring the microphone, please? I know we're, we're, we're gonna make this really fast, but we did most of the talking tonight, so let, let's let the audience do a little bit more. Very simple, fast question. What can people around the world do? I mean, everyone who's watching is... But it's kind of hard to, uh, to hear you. What, what, did you what say? can people around the world do with this? How can we help? What can you can do a lot. Yeah. You know? Even the fellow speakers before me, he said, you know, in Afghanistan, we are saying people's power is the God's power. Okay, but what exactly it means, you like, you have the power to put pressure on your governments to stand up for the rights of Afghan women, to stand up against any peace deal that sacrifices the basic and fundamental rights of people. We didn't gain these rights cheap and easily. We sacrificed, we lost family members, we lost our friends, we lost our comrades down the line, and, and we are still sacrificing for that. 
and, and we don't want to lose that easily and, 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 and in a deal between U.S. and the Taliban. And you, as citizens of the world, you have that power to put pressure on your politicians, to put pressure on your MPs, to put pressure on your governments, to just say whatever is they are going to make a deal, it, there should be clear red lines. And those red lines are our constitution, our fundamental rights, and our rights of women and men in, in Afghanistan. And, 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 and this is very clear, and this is what we really want to see. We don't want to go under the Taliban. No one in Afghanistan wants to go under the rule of the Taliban. And, and this is loud and clear, and, and this is what people from south to east and north to west are, are saying. This is not because I'm a city girl and, and sitting in front of you and, and talking about this. It's worth saying really quickly that if you want to put pressure on a government directly, that would be a thing to do. But one of the problems now is that the peace process has created this weird dynamic where the Taliban says the Ghani government is not legitimate, we don't want to talk to them. So the government of Afghanistan is not recognized as legitimate by the Taliban. But the Americans are so desperate to have a peace deal with the Taliban, they're saying, okay, okay, uh, we'll let you have that position, which delegitimates the government of Afghanistan, which is a pressure point for doing these things. So the Americans are partially to blame out of their desperation to get out of there. So, you know, everyone looks pretty bad in this situation, but it's out of a sense of desperation and exhaustion from what's happened in the last um, 20 years almost. Anyway, we're done. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Soria.